In the early days of COVID-19 forcing an end to in-person church gatherings, there was a rush to declare the church is not a building. Everybody wanted to put the most uh, positive spin they could. Uh, I read lots of articles and tweets about this is a good thing for the church because uh, you know it'll test us and test our metal. And isn't it great that we have technology and you know we're ready for this and maybe we'll reach even more people than we ever reached before. Uh, and so encouraged by that exhortation, many churches settled into some form of web-based services in order to connect with members. Uh, of course, we thought it would all be over May 31st. That was the target date. I remember Gino saying, yeah, this is going to go on till Christmas. And so uh, I don't know if that's a prophecy. I mean, he wasn't in a prophecy mood, but, but uh, now we think it'll go on until after the election. Uh, then we'll see. But who knows? Uh, and so a lot of churches have settled into that. Uh, June, July, now it's the middle of August, and as various mandates are issued regarding social distancing and sheltering at home and masks and singing and chanting in church, most churches are struggling to comply. Uh, some are going to really great lengths. I, I, in a sense, although I think they ought to just meet, obviously, I applaud the churches here in the valley who are trying to meet outdoors without killing a bunch of old people that can't handle. You say, well, we'll meet early. Somebody was talking to me the other day and said, we're going to have an outdoor event and we'll, we'll, we'll do it early in the morning, like at 10 o'clock, as if at 10 o'clock it isn't 90 degrees, you know, right now. So, but uh, churches are struggling. Christians are divided about COVID-19. They're sharply divided and have lots of opinions. Some strongly believe that this is a time for us to be a witness by obeying the government authorities, and they have lots of uh, reasonable arguments for why this is a time we should uh, obey the government. Others just as strongly believe that this is a time to disobey the governing authorities or ignore them and obey God rather than man. And as far as I can tell, there isn't one right answer. Uh, you, may, you may think that there is. Uh, of course, your answer would be the disobedience because you're here, but, uh, you know, and obviously mine would too because I'm here and we've been here the whole time, but uh, we're not doing it to defy anybody and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So people are divided and, and it's, um, it's, I think it's been a terrible testimony, to tell you the truth, online, a terrible online testimony, Christians arguing with each other and, and uh, you, you know, each servant is going to be judged by his master. And so you don't need to worry about what other churches are doing. You, I mean the collective you. Uh, we don't need to prove our position to people. We just need to hold it in good conscience. You remember, I think it was on SNL, that routine, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on television. Remember that? Yeah, that was that, that thing. Over the last few months, it could be said of a great many believers, I'm not a medical expert, but I play one in church. I've heard so many different theories about hydrochlory, whatever it is, chloroquine, and, and about masks, and masks are good for you, masks are bad for you, masks are killing you, they're full of germs, and you know, all the, everybody's got an opinion on, on that. It seems like we're all medical experts when it comes to that. Uh, others say, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I play one in church, and everybody wants to talk about the Constitution, it's on our side, uh, and that's great, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm okay with our constitutional protections, but the courts seem divided and stacked against us, if, if anything. Those of you who are following John MacArthur filing a lawsuit in Southern California and 
Grace Community Church, uh, the court ruled in his favor, and then they ruled the next court ruled against him. And so, uh, hey, don't don't get me wrong. I love the United States, and I love the Constitution uh, in that way. But we can't trust that. And um, I don't know that uh, any of us are against science, but experts are in strong disagreement on how to handle COVID-19. Uh, of course, most of the uh, videos and suggestions that say the government is wrong get ripped off of social media pretty quickly. You have to go to secret dark websites. Uh, this morning somebody sent me, here's the you know, forbidden video, and I'm like, do I dare to, you know, are there gonna be men in black at my door when I click on this? Is this a trick from Google? Uh, and, and of course I've pointed out in our prophecy updates that all this excitement about being online like we are tonight, high online audience, you know, Google or Facebook, I mean, if somebody at Google was listening to this right now, they just pulled the plug on us. They say, hey, Calvary Hanford is violating our standards. They seem to be meeting. And so we don't want that to happen. And so, and then all of a sudden, you're not meeting online or anywhere else for that matter. And so I'm here to give you a different perspective, uh, and that is that the church is a building. The church is a building. It's not a uh, stick and plaster building like this, but it's a supernatural building, and that is one of the points of our text in Ephesians. So in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, Paul has been talking to the Ephesians uh, about how uh, Jesus Christ has uh, uh, eliminated the separation between Jews and Gentiles, and that we are all one body. And then he goes into the, uh, talking about us being built on the earth, and he says, first of all, the church is a household built on a foundation, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. So those are all building metaphors. They have to do with building a house. Then the church on earth is a building that is a holy temple in the Lord. So we're a household of faith, and we are a holy temple to the Lord, another building metaphor. And the church on earth is being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And so that somehow has a different slant to it than a temple, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get there. Uh, but before we move on and look at these buildings, we need to ask, was Paul talking about the church in general or at large? Or was he talking about the gathering of a local church? Because a lot of people, their argument is uh, the church isn't a building. Of course, they mean you don't have to have a building to do church. Uh, and the church is just at large. And so wherever we are, we're the church. Um, first of all, the only reason anybody, I think the only reason we should have a building or anybody should have a building is that the Lord led in that direction, right? I mean. Uh, it would be weird if somebody came to Hanford and said, we're going to buy a building. We're going to buy First Baptist Church and start a Calvary Chapel. We have no members and no money and nothing's happening. But as soon as we buy the building, and there's a subtle thing that happens in churches too. A lot of times churches get wound up and they think, you know, we're not growing like we should. 
I bet if we had a building, we'd grow. It's because people don't like the bathrooms or they don't like, you know, the, the atmosphere or whatever. And I've seen a lot of churches just really go down the tubes after they bought a building that they couldn't afford. In fact, people don't come, they leave. Uh, and it's, it's very sad. And so I agree with all that. But we've just seen that the church is a building. Uh, and I think, as far as this question, was Paul talking about the church at large or the gathering of a local church? Why argue? I'd be willing to concede that he was talking about both, that there's application to both, uh, because we're in the church as a gathering and we're also out in the world ministering. And in that sense, the truth still remains. When we gather together on earth, we are a very spiritual building, a unique building unlike any building that there ever has been or ever will be. And so verse 19 and 20, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being chief cornerstone. Uh, a household, as I said, suggests a building in which there are servants. Uh, we need to think in New Testament terms, in Roman terms, the Greek culture. It isn't just your house, it's a household, uh, kind of like Downton Abbey. That's my favorite go-to illustration. I always get to tell you how much I hated that show. I just, I couldn't take it. If I was British, I would have renounced my citizenship and done anything to get to America. I mean, those people are all crazy. Right? How could they have almost ruled the entire world for so long with their fork on the right side, you know, and stuff? It's insane. But it suggests a, a household with a bunch of servants all given their tasks. Paul will go on to say Jesus gave, himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so he mentions some of the servants that helped to establish this household on the foundation of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension uh, and, and those servants who then work in the household uh, and then, of course, Paul talks a lot about uh, other servants as well in different letters. Reading the New Testament, you see that the apostles and prophets established local gatherings of believers under the oversight of gifted men. That's a given. That's a fact. Paul the apostle didn't just evangelize, not that there's anything wrong with that. He always left the believers in a group, might have been a tiny, small group, and he encouraged them to look for qualified men to hold certain offices in the church, gifted men who were filled with the Holy Spirit and who could be led by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's understanding was that he would leave behind believers in a local church setting who met together uh, for uh, fellowship and all the things that the church does. And one way to approach this is to point out that believers have a gift or gifts of God the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, then you have at least one gift of the Spirit, uh, probably more. Uh, maybe you haven't discovered it yet or maybe you exercise it and haven't named it, but you do. Uh, and so uh, while we for sure can serve the Lord when we are not gathered together, the presumption here is a gathering. And when we gather together in person, we are able to exercise our gifts in ways that can't present themselves otherwise. As we do, our gracious spirit-led interactions testify to non-believers who might be among us of Jesus being in our midst. Again, it's not that we can't witness in public. 
It's just that certain things happen in the church gathering that don't happen when you're having coffee at 111 or at Starbucks. Remember the Corinthian church? Who could forget those guys? They uh, were famous for producing leather. Who remembers the Corinthian leather? Rich Corinthian leather. Ricardo Montalban, what a great guy. I love that guy. Oh, well. Anyway, one of the problems Paul corrected them about was their serious misuse of spiritual gifts. After discussing gifts at length for about three chapters, 12, 13, and most of chapter 14, He says, how is it then, brethren? This is his conclusion about spiritual gifts in the church. He says, whenever you come together. So he's talking about a gathering of the church. He's just talked about gifts and and exercising them. Probably says, now you guys are going to come together. Each one of you has a psalm or a teaching or a tongue or a revelation or an interpretation of tongues. Let it all be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three each in turn. Let one other interpret. If there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. If anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and that all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Clearly, obviously, undoubtedly, Paul was talking about the use of gifts when we are gathered together. Doubtful that you're going to speak in tongues at Starbucks and require an interpretation. I mean, maybe. I mean, you know, I, I always know that God can do, he might do that to me now, you know, next time I go to Starbucks. Of course, I've got one up on him because I don't go to Starbucks. But anyway, <laughs> but you, you understand, Paul said, hey, you, you each have gifts and they're wonderful, they're gracious, they're, they're to build up one another and to serve the Lord in this household. And you exercise them mostly when you get together with one another in a gathering of saints. When we don't uh, gather regularly under an established spiritual authority, our gifts can languish. Obviously, if you're not exercising them, they're they're going to languish. They're what um, in uh, fire services and in police services, they call it perishable skills, probably the military too, where you have to have constant training in the same subjects because you don't use them all the time. And it seems, ah, we, you know, CPR is a good example. You you need constant retraining because you may never do CPR and then you'll need it one day and you'll find out that they don't do breaths anymore. They just do compressions. And you think, wow, when did that happen? And so uh, it's a perishable skill. And so Paul says your gifts, they're they're not gonna be taken away from you. They're not gonna not exist. But if you're not exercising them, you're not growing in them. And you aren't being refreshed by the gifts of others. If somebody shares a scripture or a word of prophecy and, you're not, there, and you know, you're not there to hear it, it doesn't minister to you. And if we're not gathered together, uh, it's, it, you're not, we're not doing that. And so unless we meet, we can't fully be God's household of servants on the earth. Uh, verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple unto the Lord. The picture here is a stonemason building a temple using uneven stones. He has to carefully fit them together so that there aren't huge gaps. Now, I'm terrible with everything. I don't do brickwork. I don't do stonework. Uh, I mean, I have no skill when it comes to things. I may be able to repair a brick that falls over with some instant concrete or something, but 
you know, by the time I'm done, um, everything I do would look like that house, that bizarre house on Oaks and uh, Earl Way that has all the crazy brick that's, finally people are living in there, by the way. I think they're a family of wizards, but uh, it, no. <laughs> they wear these weird hats, but anyway. But uh, flagstone especially, or uneven stones, you know, where you have to place them. And you can't have like three feet of grout in between, or, or you know, masonry, and they have to fit. And I really appreciate guys who are able to do that. And Jacob pointed out to me recently in one of, uh, I think we were talking, he said that a first century carpenter was not just a carpenter. One resource explained it this way. After Jesus teaches in his hometown synagogue, the crowd asks, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? The Greek word tekton, this is a, an expert, not me. I don't know anything about Greeks except Zeus. Uh, the Greek word tekton, translated here as carpenter, is more accurately rendered as craftsman or builder. At face value, without taking the Jewish cultural background into consideration, a carpenter could fit that description. However, a quick survey of northern Israel's landscape reveals that the job of a carpenter may not be the best fit for that word. More likely, or at least in addition to being a carpenter, Jesus was a stonemason because they built primarily with uh, stone. And thus, this picture Paul is painting in our verse has even more depth when he talks about Jesus as, you know, putting us together as stones in the building, that was his occupation and now it's his spiritual occupation. And notice too, these stones are said to grow. Another way of understanding what is meant is given to us by the apostle Paul, or Peter rather, when he says, you also as living or lively stones are being built up a spiritual house unto the Lord. Uh, and so he picks up on that same metaphor. The church is being built, and we are each like some kind of a flagstone. Now, this may sound silly, but how can we be fit together if we are not together? Yes, I know I'm part of the universal church throughout the ages, but I am called supernaturally to be the pastor of this local church. I'm not a general pastor to the universal church. I don't just show up at Koinonia and say, I'm delivering the message today and they don't do it over here. Occasionally we have some crazy person come and say they are delivering the message today. They usually identify as Elijah. You know how people identify as different things now? Men identify as women and vice versa. We've, for years the church has had to deal with that. A lot of guys come and say, I'm Elijah. And uh, we say, well, uh, we've got your chariot of fire right here. Uh, follow me to your chariot. Uh, it's, it's, it's black and white in color, uh, and it will take you where you need to go. But anyway, now we've only had to call the police once. Uh, <laughs> it's a good story. I'll tell it sometime. Next time you want to interrupt me, just say, Pastor Gene, tell that story. So we need to be fit together. Uh, and, and here's something the Lord showed me. I think this is kind of precious. Each time we gather... Think of it, there are going to be different living stones for Jesus to work with. So if I'm a living stone and I'm, you know, shaped a certain way and growing, so I'd shape, you know, my shape, maybe I'm a shape-shifting stone, who knows, but I don't want to take the metaphor too far. But if we're all living stones and if I come to church one night and John doesn't, well, then we can't be fit together the way we were tonight. 
We have to be fit together with other people in a different way. I have to be fit together with Sean when he leads worship or with Nick and Liz, for example. And so whoever meets together supernaturally, spiritually, God is fitting us together in a way so that we, that group, that gathering can minister to one another so that the Lord puts things on your heart. I need to go pray for Jillian or I need to do this right now. And, and, and we obey the Lord. And so our gatherings are never quite the same. And it's important what we gather so Jesus can place us different ways for our growth. Another way of putting the same idea, I'm a living stone, but if by myself or sheltered at home, I can't be fitted and the overall growth is limited. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. If you are a believer in Jesus, God the Holy Spirit already indwells you. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit being in you. One thing Pentecostals understand well is that Jesus does manifest himself in special ways when believers gather. Like the Corinthians of old, they can tend to act carnally and out of order. But it remains true, Jesus wants to manifest himself. Paul, when he corrected the Corinthian church, which is, we would say is a Pentecostal church with Pentecostal excesses, he didn't say quit doing all that stuff and just teach the word. He said, no, do this stuff the right way. And so uh, there is a sense of doing things and being together and having the presence of the Lord in a special way. After telling us in the book of the Revelation that the lampstand represents actual gathered believers on the earth, the Lord says he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He is there, he is here when we gather in a way that is more than simply being omnipresent. Who remembers the song, He Is Here? How many of you remember that old Calvary song? He is here, come on, here we go. He is here, he is moving among us. He is here, he is here, as we gather in his name. He is here, he is here, and he wants to work a wonder. He is here, as we gather in his name. Man, 1978, here we are. That's a great song. I had to look up the lyrics. I only remember the first couple of lines, but it's, it's great. That, and we, we sung that and we sing that and we, we believe that. We sang some songs tonight that say the same thing, essentially, that when we gather, certain things are going to happen that don't otherwise happen. So should the church gather against the mandates of the governing authorities? I think that's a local decision. There is no one answer for every fellowship. Any church that asks me my opinion, sure, I think you should meet. I think you should do what we did and just remain open and let people come or go as they please because people are smart. Uh, they don't need to be told what to do. If they think that they should wear masks and social distance and they know that isn't happening at our church, then they won't come. They'll watch online. Uh, so it's not a defiance. It's just, hey, we're going to be here anyway, so you might as well come. And now it's caught on, and so other people from a lot of other churches are coming, and God bless them. I'm glad that we have them. So I'd like to suggest this, that we frame the question biblically. Instead of asking, is it essential that Christians meet together to sing and to hear the word, let's ask it this way. Is it essential that God's household servants gather together in order to exercise supernatural gifts and be growing as a temple of God on the earth? Oh, yeah, I, that sounds a lot different than what the government thinks we're doing. You folks don't need to sing or chant. Uh, let's, let's be healthy. In fact, you don't even need to meet indoors. 
you, you know, you're like the Rotary Club or the, you know, uh, Gideons or somebody like you, It doesn't really matter what you do as a church. But, you know, it is essential. The gathering of the local church on the earth is unlike any commercial, religious, or social gathering. It, we are absolutely unique. I mean, people would think, oh, you know, how arrogant, how conceited. But really, if you're a Christian, you know this in your heart. There is nothing like the gathering of the church on the earth, the gathering of Christians. No other social brotherhood, nothing else is like it. And if we really believe the scriptures, and we do, it's obvious that the church must be excluded when issuing mandates or in strictly following them because we can't be categorized with any other institution. Yes, I know we individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is omnipresent, but he is here in ways he is not when you are anywhere else. He said it, not me. And so super important that we meet. Now let me tack on a footnote. I know you've been thinking about this too. I've been reading a lot of comments about the effects of COVID-19 on mental wellness. Not the effects of the disease, but the effects of the efforts to flatten the curve. For example, domestic violence is spiking. Uh, people can't get along. Uh, they're out of their routine. And, and they're, sadly, husbands and wives or partners are spending too much time together, and it's resulting in violence, serious violence. Suicide is spiking. It's hard to get numbers on this because, you know, nobody's really doing a lot of research. But secular, and I emphasize that, not Christian, but secular psychologists are predicting that depression, clinical depression, and suicide will get increasingly worse over the next few years. Not just right now. Not if we, even if we return to normal soon. We're looking at people who have lost their jobs permanently have lost their businesses permanently, marriages that have split up permanently. Just, it's a destruction of society in, in many ways. Uh, then there's this. Uh, it takes away basic human dignity. I don't know if you've thought about that. Uh, John MacArthur brought this up in one of the interviews I saw. We've been thinking about it too, but he, he, put a, uh, you know, he articulated it well. Uh, he, he realized that here he was a pastor couldn't visit anybody in the hospital. They can't have funerals, no weddings, no graduations, none of the rituals of human life that we've come to enjoy that bring dignity to who we are as human beings. Now, are any of those things essential? Maybe not and maybe so, and, but if they're not essential, they're sure tearing people down. So I guess in some areas, if my wife is dying, and taking her last breath, she'll do it with a qualified nurse while I sit in the waiting room and await information that she's gone to be with Jesus. Too bad I couldn't be there. Too bad her children couldn't be there to say goodbye because after all, you know, the governor thinks that's a bad thing. Somebody was telling me about, they, they attended a funeral in Iowa. It was a drive-by funeral. They literally had the, co the open coffin outside on the sidewalk and people had to drive by in their cars on the street. There's no dignity in that. And the government just needs to be more farsighted. We're going to save lives, I would, I would hope, by doing what we're doing, but it's going to cost lives later on. I'll tell you, this is not a funny story, but it's, it's, it's an interesting illustration in terms of what we think is gonna happen and what actually happens when we try and deal with these things. 
Years ago, and this is true, I, I researched it years ago. Years ago in Great Britain, they, they, they decided that it was costing the socialized medicine system too much money to deal with the effects of smoking, lung cancer and emphysema and all the secondary smoke and all of that. So they mounted a huge campaign to stop smoking for health reasons, but primarily to save money because it was so costly. And everything was great. They, they stopped people from smoking and a lot of people quit smoking and, and the air was cleared up and you know all of this kind of good stuff. Until several years later, smokers weren't dying. And now you had a new geriatric population of people who were costing the government more money to take care of them in their old age. They would have died and been off the roll, but now you had to take care of them. And so you can't just say, hey, here's what we're going to do and it's going to work out great because you don't know what the consequences are going to be. The consequences of our government's response to COVID-19 are going to be death for a lot of people from suicide and the death of dreams and all of these things. And I'll just end with this. They're going to need the church, like it or not. And we need to be open and ready for spiritual business. Amen. Amen.